Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm going to offer a little teaching tonight on the subject of money and its relationship to your emotional life. I'm going to be speaking about money and emotions and how they're connected because I have a lot of feelings about money. And if you're honest, I know that you do too. Um, You know, some people feel shame regarding the whole subject of money because maybe you grew up without enough money and... uh, and your parents always bought you knockoff Converse at Costco. And everybody knew, by the way, at your school that you were wearing those. Uh, or maybe you are now parents of children and you realize that by the time they go to college, you're not going to have anything saved up for their college fund because you just can't. And you're surrounded by people who have, you know, had it easier or maybe made better decisions or whatever and you feel ashamed because you haven't provided in the way that you thought you'd be able to. For other people, they're extremely critical about money, not about how they use money, but about how other people spend money. They think, wow, they really got themselves into a lot of credit card debt, that's unfortunate, glad I don't have that problem. Uh, Or, do they really need a new car? Really, a new car? Don't they know that if you buy a used car that's just used for two years, you get a better bang for your buck and you do a lot better, you know? Uh, very critical with other people. For some people, it's about envy. You know, uh, other people don't have to be saddled with endless amounts of debt or somebody paid off their loans or they got a good inheritance, but I never got a good inheritance. Come to think of it, I've never had any breaks in my life. For other people, they're manipulated by money. Has anybody ever given you an audacious gift that you didn't know had like a million strings attached to it? So, yes, I'm going to give you this gift, but I expect you to show appreciation for the rest of your life, world without end. Um, Or somebody took you on a very fancy, swanky date, and yeah, at the end of the night, they had certain expectations. Manipulated by money. For others, money gives people a sense of worth or security, right? I'll never be poor, I'll never have to scrape. I'm never going to shop at Salvo. I don't have to worry about the next month because I have my security, and I'm okay. Uh, Well, St. Paul, in all of his emotional brilliance, and by the way, he was emotionally brilliant. So was Jesus. Paul gets it from Jesus, but he had a profound insight about the nature of human emotions. And he connects emotions with giving. Um, giving money away. He he understands the emotional nature of it. And he writes a lot about it. And he writes about it in 1 Corinthians, but also in our reading from 2 Corinthians. Chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians are utterly revolutionary. Here's why. So St. Paul realizes that the home base, the church in Jerusalem, filled with Jewish people, is in dire need. You know, they're facing evictions and bankruptcy and all sorts of problems. And so Paul is going to these Gentiles, Gentiles, 
in Corinth who have never stepped foot in Jerusalem and who don't know anybody in Jerusalem, he wants them to bail out the Jerusalem church. May not sound like a big deal to you, huge deal back then, because not only were people very territorial, um, they still are in many ways, but even more so then, uh, but also there was this enormous Jew-Gentile divide that Paul is now bridging through this giving gesture as he asks people in Corinth to support Jews in Jerusalem. Revolutionary act. And Paul writes about that act in, in particular, but he also writes about general Christian giving in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We're just going to read a little bit of it tonight. But out of that little bit, I'd like to make three points about gospel-oriented giving. I want to speak about the promise of giving, the amount of giving, and the emotion of giving. First things first, the promise of giving. Our section in this broader context of 2 Corinthians begins and ends with promissory language. Namely, Paul makes the bold claim that if you sow generously, you will reap generously. Uh, now, let's look at uh, the buttressing verses at the beginning and the end. Verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Then let's skip down to verse 10 near the end. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What Paul is saying is there is a promissory nature to giving within the Christian life. Uh, he says the more generous the sowing, the more generous the reaping. That image is throughout scriptures. It's in the Psalms, it's in the teachings of Jesus, and it comes back here in the teaching of Paul. Sowing and reaping is farming language. He's using farming metaphors to talk about money. To sow, as you probably know, means that you've got a handful of kernels and you're walking through a field and you let go of the kernels into the field and many of them will take root, grow, and eventually you'll have a harvest to reap. It's a good metaphor for money, for generosity, and here's why. Because if you, as a farmer, hold on to the kernels in your hand because you're afraid to let them go or you're afraid of potential waste, uh, if they remain in your hand, they will never grow and you will never have a harvest of any kind. You actually have to lose your control a little bit, lose your grip, let them go, and let the natural processes uh, cultivate what you have let go of. Similarly with our money, St. Paul says you have to let it go. And when you let it go in a good context, namely the work of the kingdom of God, then you will receive, in fact, a harvest. You will reap what you sow. I want to say that is totally and profoundly true, and this passage and others like it have been totally and profoundly abused, namely by this heresy known as the health and wealth gospel. Some of you know what it is. I have bottomless contempt for it. Um, but the health and wealth gospel is basically uh, a materialist principle that goes something like this that God will reward you materially according to the materials that you employ. Namely, if you sow in cash or Bitcoin, 
then God will grant you more cash and more Bitcoin at a great rate, a great rate of return. More than that, especially they, they often teach, if you tithe, especially on the gross, if you tithe, then God will give you uh, not only cash back, he'll also give you complete or near complete protection from fallenness in terms of your own personal prestige and in terms of your own personal health. You and your loved ones are less likely to get sick because God is rewarding you for your faithfulness. Um, the health wealth gospel promises that we will reap materially what we sow materially. Uh, now, that's insipid because it ignores fallenness within this realm that everything, including our money, eventually wastes away. More than that, it's damaging because what do you then believe if it doesn't work out? Namely, you've sown your faith seed, you gave your money thinking that this will give me a cash back return or some other high protection or favor or a better or holier family or whatever, and all of a sudden things don't work out. Then you've got two problems. One, either God is not at the center of this thing or he's not faithful, or worse, for your own personal psychology, well, actually, that's worse, probably, but second, still bad, you hate yourself because you just didn't use the system well enough. You didn't obey enough, you didn't yield enough, you didn't pray enough, you didn't believe enough. By the way, parenthetically, if somebody in your life is sick and really ailing and has said their prayers, never, ever, ever tell them it's because they don't have enough faith that they haven't been healed. That is extremely presumptuous, and it's heretical. So please don't do that. Life is complicated. People are fallen. You never know why people don't get healed. Please don't presume to know as much as God. Okay, <laughs> moving along. Um, Paul does promise a yield to our giving here, but I want you to notice what he promises in verse 10. In fact, I'd like you to um, read it along with me. Verse 10, please. Let's do this aloud you'll get a star for participation. Here's what it says. Let's say it together. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Just to, to help you underscore the last bit, you may want to underline it. God will increase, what? The harvest of your righteousness. He did not say he would give you a lot of money. He didn't say that he'll give you a brand new car. He didn't, in fact, say to you that you won't get, uh, that you won't get Lou Gehrig's. He never says that. What he says here is that he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. And if God happens to increase your wealth, he expects you, it says in the next verse, to use that wealth for his praise and glory so that you can be more generous with it. This is not some ironclad notarized guarantee of more cash, more influence, more health. It's for the harvest of your righteousness. What does that mean? That your inner life, your affections, your will will align more and more with the will and affections of heaven. And friends, that is so much better than money. I know that sounds ridiculous, especially if you're broke right now. And if you're broke right now, that is a huge problem. And I'm not ignoring that. But I'm saying in the long run, the best thing that could ever happen to you is to find yourself in your life evolving so that the person that you are becomes a little bit more like Christ, the magnanimous, generous Christ 
Christ at the heart of everything because that transcends your financial currents. That will always be true. And that, that affect within you, that nature within you, will affect every single relationship you have, every situation in which you find yourself. Being, receiving a harvest of righteousness will, will be a tide that, that really raises all boats in the bay. It just affects everything beautifully and wonderfully. Wealth can't do that. If it's just money that God's giving you, that it can't really make you that happy. That's why Jim Carrey, my own personal patron saint, the actor Jim Carrey, um, I, I'm, I'm totally crushing on his acting abilities. I think he's a genius. Not Ace Ventura aside, the rest of it, a genius. And, and Jim Carrey said, I wish that everyone had as much money as I have so that they would see it doesn't fix very many of your problems. So take it from St. Jim. Uh, but that's the benefit of this harvest of righteousness. What Paul is saying is if you give, you will receive, but the thing that you're going to receive is a different you, a more generous you, an expanded you, a person that grows into the nature and stature of Christ, and there ain't nothing better than that. That's the promise. It can unmake sin in your life. It's enormously helpful, enormously humanizing. That's the promise of giving. Point two, the amount of giving. Let's get controversial. Verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. I shall read it again. Verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. What he is saying is the individual Christian, via their own conscience, decides what to give to the work of God in the world. This is the Christian rule. The individual Christian decides what to give. There's no percentage listed here. Many Christians, especially clergy, would disavow this, at least functionally. They say that the standard amount for biblical giving is the tithe. Now, some people use the word tithe in, a, in an expansive way, just meaning their gift to the church. They don't literally mean 10% of gross or net income, but a lot of people do. I've been to many churches where they demand that everybody tithe. Some churches where you can't be a member unless you tithe from your income. But this is problematic, friends. Here's why. There's not one tithe in the Old Testament. There are three. There are three tithes in the Old Testament that help to uh, support materially the Levites. Remember, the Levites were the ones, the priest caste, who had no land allotments, therefore they couldn't glean their own crops, therefore they couldn't produce for themselves, so they were reliant upon the gifts of everybody else. And they would offer the sacrifices that everybody else brought to the temple. So they were to support the Levites and the sacrificial system. They were also there to support the, the festivals of the temple uh, and all the activities of the temple surrounding those festivals. Additionally, almost all of those three tithes in the Old Testament, at least uh, the composites of them, almost all of what was tithe was agriculture, not money, providing food again for the Levites and sacrifices and so forth. Well, during the New Testament's composition, at least much of the composition, there was no more temple. It was destroyed in 70 AD. There were no Levites offering sacrifices in that temple, and Christians were no longer uh, celebrating the ancient Jewish festivals because they believed that those festivals were shadows that were completed uh, by the Lord's Supper and various other things. And so this is why, unsurprisingly, the New Testament never, not once, commands a tithe. 
If Paul wanted to, he could just cite the Old Testament saying, this practice was good back then, it's good for you now. Simply do it. He never does that. He could have, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now, he commands giving, each one must give, but he never lists the amount nor the percentage. Now, this is not just my crazy notion. John Owen, that ancient, squishy, biblical liberal, just kidding, he was a Puritan with a backbone made of steel. John Owen says this, it is no safe plea for many to insist that tithes are due to the church. The precise law of tithing is not confirmed in the gospel. It is impossible that any one certain rule of giving should be prescribed unto all persons. Now, friends, some in this room simply prefer offering 10% to the church because it's a challenge that they're striving to meet. I think that's fine. I think it's even laudable. And you might personally commend the practice. But there is a difference in Christianity between commending and commanding. We are not able to command you to do what Scripture does not command you to do. So you might find it personally commendable, and that's fine, but we are not under the law of Moses nor the temple system that was part of it. There is no temple. There are no Levites. We do not offer uh, a tangible animal sacrifices anymore that the tithing um, supported. Why do I mention the whole issue of amount or percentage? Here's why. Because parishioners are at times burdened by an expectation that they must tithe or they're not real Christians, or, they, or they're sort of substandard members of the church. In other words, tithing has been used to shame Christians who can't seem to manage to produce enough for the church. Uh, let me tell you this little story. There was somebody years ago who came to me very ashamed at the level of their giving, saying that it was too low, it was far too low, and they were embarrassed, but they were in a lot of debt, and they were trying to just eke out an existence and barely manage. What did I tell them as their rector? I said, I don't want you to give anything at all for the next three years. Get things in order at home. If you want to help out in church, great. But please, like, do not make this the litmus test of your own personal piety. And eventually they were in a place where they were able to give. But I'm also glad that they were able to get things in order at home and not feel so much burdened. Um, friends, God's focus within the new covenant is not upon percentages and spreadsheets, but upon inward motives and emotions. And that's the last point. So I've talked about the promise of giving, the amount of giving, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, and the emotion of giving. Reading verse 7, but in its fullness. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, notice the emotive language, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uses emotive language four times there. Heart, reluctantly, compulsion, cheerful. Uh, you may know that within the biblical corpus, the heart is, is seen as the veritable star chamber of the human person, the, the center of human emotion, motivation, affections, and will. So he wants to, you to give from that place. But you can give from that place, from the heart, with errant motivations, dangerous motivations. And he lists them. Reluctance, 
What is reluctance? Reluctance means hesitation, where you always second-guess the worthwhile nature of your giving to this particular place, where you get anxious over the decision to give. Uh, or reluctant giving can also be manipulative. I will give to this place so long as it does something for me and helps me in the way that I deem I deserve it, or I want a little political sway out of this. That's reluctant giving. Giving that is under compulsion is forced giving, where you lose your human agency and you are coerced into giving. You must do it or else, or else God will smite you or the pastor will be mad at you. Um, that's compulsive giving. Uh, but what Paul encourages is not unemotional giving, but right, rightful emotional giving. He encourages cheer, in Greek, hilaron, or hilarity, mirth, fun a little bit of zaniness, that giving money in the healthiest way comes from a place of happiness rather than fear or force. This is why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says regarding giving, don't let your right hand know what your left is doing when you give, that it could be so intrinsic to you and so full of hilarity, you could just let it happen, let it flow. You know, sometimes we often think that if we are super cautious and uber protective financially, then we'll prosper in life. Jesus and St. Paul agree that when you give with hilarity, when you give with cheer, that is how your life expands. That's how you prosper in your true humanity. That's how you have a harvest of righteousness. Not when you hold all the kernels, but when you have the courage to let some go. You know, sometimes we do give this way. Where we're so excited to give somebody a gift, we're just over the moon wondering, how will they respond? Will they like it? Will they know how much this communicates about my own love? I, I remember a, a gift that I made for Monique. It was very early on in our relationship. Well, it seems early on now. It was the point in which I asked her to be my wife. We were at Eastern University. It was a snowy day, and I had purchased a, a, a modest ring for her. But I also gave a corresponding gift to that ring, which was I did a portrait of us, a charcoal portrait, um, of both of us together, arm in arm, and in the portrait, she was wearing the ring that I was about to give her, sort of a hint of what was coming. Now, that was a little daring, maybe even a little dumb, because it assumed that she would, like, say, sure, and, and I'm glad that she did. But I can't tell you what that did for me. I was so excited to share something uh, of uh, creative worth with her, because I hoped that it communicated something about my love for her. And you know what that's like, because you've given somebody something audacious just hoping that they would know that they're adored and they're important. And you weren't planning you were, uh, in the sense of like, well, um, you know, if they, if they don't respond the way that I want, maybe I'll take the gift back and give it to somebody else. Or you didn't have like a huge schematic. You just thought, I love this person and I want to do this wonderful thing for them. But to allow that attitude to be the foundation of the giving that we do. It's a wonderful, freeing way to give. Well, this is Paul's point, that there are errant and rightful emotional states from which we give, and to give from hilaron, from cheer. And this is a question that only each of us can answer internally. Am I cheerfully generous with the local church? Am I cheerfully generous? Well, that's something about the promise of giving, the amount of giving, and the emotion of giving, and I'd now I'd like to wrap up this sermon by speaking about the emotions of giving in our lives right now. 
Because I, when I think about myself, and at times my really awful lack of generosity, um, it isn't caused by the money itself, you know? Dollar bills don't have that power, neither do checks or internet transfers or Bitcoin. No inherent power. Something else surcharges them and gives them authority. And that thing, that powerful controlling agent, is in fact the human heart. Spiritually speaking, the human heart has veins and capillaries that reach everywhere, even into our wallets. The heart controls the hand that clutches the wealth. Sometimes with pain, ferocity clutches the wealth. Like grabbing onto kernels that were created to be let go of and sown into a field, we can easily clutch onto wealth and refrain from sowing it. You know, our hearts, when it comes to generosity, are often troubled and ungenerous. Why? For a variety of emotional reasons. Perhaps our hearts are fearful to lose our money, lest we become insolvent and insecure. Maybe our hearts are resentful that others have more money and more financial flexibility. It could be that our hearts are so prudent that we become paranoid of waste so we don't give anything anyway, just in case it's wasted. At times our hearts are hedonistic and we don't give because that would mean less pleasure for us. Or perhaps we have in the past been manipulated to give and now our hearts are either resentful or suspicious of being potentially duped again. But the point is that our crisis resides neither in the bank nor in Bitcoin, but with the star chamber of our own chests, the human heart. So how is that same heart, the often selfish, fearful, defensive heart, healed, made generous? Well, to become a cheerful giver, we need to first have a revelation. We need a revelation that we ourselves have been lavishly given to. Augustine once prayed a prayer to God that went like this, O Lord, give what you command, and then command what you will. In other words, if you want something done, I need something first to heal me on the inside so that I'm able to produce for you. And the good news of the gospel is that God's generosity is always the first and totaling word. It's just everything. His generosity, to quote George Bush, is like a thousand points of light. Do you remember George? Uh, who cares? A thousand points of light. It speckles our lives in a myriad of ways, not just in terms of our abilities and talents, our positions and salaries, our families and friendships. I mean in terms of God himself. God gave God to you. The Father sends the Son to you. Against all evident reason and common sense, God came to us in Jesus Christ and has redeemed you from eternal bankruptcy. Christ has forgiven you from all your sin, given you the Holy Spirit, adopted you as his own child, and has freed you from eternal death. He's done it all for you without your contribution. He has saved you one-sidedly, and it's all gift. In other words, God did not tithe to you. God did not only give you 10% of himself, he gave you 100% of his own bleeding heart. He gave it all. We can't really be generous unless this platinum truth sinks into the recesses of our own souls, our own hearts. But that's what he's done, happily and with the mirth of heaven for everybody here. And by the way, speaking of everybody here, you at this church have a reputation. You have a reputation because I hear about it. 
and it's a good one. More than one minister has asked me about your generosity as a congregation because you have a reputation for being generous. Other clergy have noted that we've always done well financially, and sometimes they ask me with some exasperation, how do you get them to tithe? <laughs> I say, don't worry, I'm writing a book on it right now. No, I'm not. And what I say to them is, well, uh, I never teach tithing because uh, I don't believe in it. And we just try to give them the gospel every Sunday, and we trust that it helps people. Thank you. But that is not the answer that they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear the, the book answer. But I don't have a book, friends. I don't have a plan here. All I'm saying is that we try to announce God's good news about God's own son who cares for us and who got hurt for us and who was obliterated for us with all of our infinite problems and regressions and vexations that he's the one who causes a shriveled leathery heart to grow three sizes that day and to beat with bold and generous life so that it can become like Christ's heart so that it can expand and be gorgeous and beautiful and faithful and obedient to the kingdom purposes that will thrive because of it. And so I hope in this place you all have received that gospel and I hope that you love this church not because it's perfect, because perfection is out the window anyway, so we all have to get used to that. I hope you love this church because of what God is doing here through the gospel. Additionally, let me also say that if you're not happy here at Grace, I implore you not to give to the ministry. Really, don't, don't give a dime, because it would be far better for you to find a church that you're in love with and give the money there and support their ministry. But if you've gotten good news here and you love it, I encourage you to support us, to decide in your own heart, like St. Paul says, what you can give. And then if, if you have a spouse, maybe you're single, but make a plan and then try your best. Try your best according to the plan and see what happens. See if you don't get a harvest of righteousness in your own life that shapes you and cultivates you as God's own. See how it frees you up. Because I guarantee, based on the word of God, that it will change you, and you will have a marvelous reaping. I'll give St. Paul the last word, since he says in another portion of 2 Corinthians, regarding this very topic, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Amen.